This is our series, Desecrated, The Faces of Sin. In this series, we will examine the perverse and pervasive nature of sin as we explore specific Old Testament narratives. We will see the many faces of sin and not just view sin in a one-dimensional way, but see its multifaceted nature. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Numbers 13, 26 through 14, verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. The men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, We went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here is some of its fruit. However, the people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, Let's go up now and take possession of the land, because we can certainly conquer it. But the men who had gone up with him responded, we can't attack the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We, we even saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. Then the whole community broke out into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into the land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are a God who fights faithfully for your people. We thank you, Father, that a story that we see throughout the biblical story is that by your sovereign power, you will fulfill your promises to your people. We see it in the Exodus as you deliver the Israelites from slavery and you destroy Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And we see this in the New Testament, Father, as you destroy the power of sin and death and hell and you disarm the devil and all the principalities and power of the air of their power through the crucified and risen Christ, your Son. And you deliver us from our sin and our enslavement to sin's power through the blood of your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. But Father, we also know that part of that redemptive story is the 
power of sin and it breaks into this beautiful creation. And as a result, there's cosmic judgment and a vertical judgment that you pronounce. And we also know that sin reaches as far as the curse is found. But Father, we thank you that that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is redemption in Christ. So we pray, Father, as we think this morning about doubt and faith and, and sin as unbelief, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, move us from a posture of doubt. Move us from a posture of unbelief. And move us toward a posture of faithfulness. As you move in us to trust in what you've done for us in Christ. And Father, give me by your Spirit the power to preach this word and give your people the power to receive it. By faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've learned in this series many things. And one thing we've learned is sin is complex. The Bible, for example, talks about sin in a variety of different ways. The Bible describes sin as original sin. That is, we are all conceived in sin. In Psalm 51, David prays that very fact. That in sin, his mother conceived him. In Adam, we all sin, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. And because of Adam's transgression, a real historical Adam who fell in the garden, as we've learned in a recent series, because of his sin, we all voluntarily participate in sin. Paul says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also describes sin as a power, like an evil tyrant that rules and reigns over the entire creation like a, a master over a slave, according to Romans chapter 6. And last week we learned that sin is also an act of idolatry. From Exodus 32, as the people of God committed this gross sin by creating a golden calf, an idol to worship, an idol to which they ascribed exclusive worship that was only to be ascribed to Yahweh, the one and true God of Israel. This morning's sermon text teaches us that sin is is an act or a pattern of, of unbelief. And before we walk through Numbers 13, and I'll, I'll say a few words about Numbers 14, let me briefly try to explain the difference between doubt and unbelief as I understand the difference. Certainly Christians go through times of doubt. 
in times of unbelief. If you've been walking with Jesus for any period of time, if you were honest with yourself, I think you would admit that there were moments in your walk where you doubted the promises of God and when you were you found it difficult to believe the promises of God. So just know from the outset, I've, I've been walking with Jesus for 25 years, and there have been moments in my life where I have doubted that God will do what he has promised, and I've struggled to believe by faith that he would do what he has promised. And that is part of the rhythm, I think, of the, the Christian life. If I could just for a moment appeal to that famous Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress, you know, we're all sometimes like Christian, aren't we? We're, we're heading toward the celestial city, the new heavens and the new earth, but at times we are swallowed up by doubt or despondency, and we struggle to get there. But we get there, don't we? Because of God's faithfulness in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do not believe that unbelief and doubt are the same thing. For example, if I believe God can save unbelievers, but I don't think he will, I would describe that as doubt. Whereas if I disbelieve that God can save unbelievers, when he in fact has said that he will, but I disbelieve that he will because I don't think he is able to save unbelievers, then I think that's an example of unbelief, which, if not repented of, may lead to apostasy and to God's judgment. However, unbelief, hear this carefully, unbelief, a pattern of unbelief, refusing to commit to what God has said, even though you may struggle with doubt, a pattern of unbelief, which is another way of talking about disobedience, will certainly lead to God's judgment. Because those who live in a pattern of unbelief, those who, say it this way, those who reject the gospel of Jesus, who refuse to give their lives in a rhythm of faithfulness, not perfection, but faithfulness, those people have no promise of eternal life. Further, faith and obedience... Are you still with me? This is necessary to get to the text. I promise. I'm not wasting words here to fill up time. Faith and obedience are not the same thing. But faith and obedience are closely connected to each other. Faith is not less than cognitive affirmation about theological facts. But faith is certainly more than that. So, for example, you must believe, you must cognitively affirm, you must agree with what the Bible says regarding Jesus' death and resurrection. There is no such thing as a Christian who rejects the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No such thing. But it is not enough simply to check that theological box. Even the demons believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and yet they do not have faith, brothers and sisters. 
But genuine saving faith, faith that is real, is faith that says yes and amen to the fact that Jesus died for our sin and God physically raised him from the dead. And faith also commits itself to those propositions in a rhythm of submitting one's life to God and to Christ until the end. We don't do that perfectly, but we do that faithfully. Isn't that what James means in James chapter 2, verses 14 and following, when he says, faith without works is dead? Genuine saving faith proves itself by a life of obedience. And just hear this. Some of you might get anxious when the preacher talks about obedience. Don't be anxious. Obedience is not the same thing as perfection. If that were the case, we're all going to hell today because no one's perfect. Obedience is faithfully following Jesus, confessing our sins, choosing to walk in the light. That is faith. My basic exhortation to you from Numbers 13 and 14 this morning is to have faith in God. And to point that text to Jesus, to have faith that God has fulfilled all of his redemptive promises for his people and for the world in Christ. And there are two truths from Numbers 13 and 14 I want us to think about, and I'll give you three applications in the end, all right? Number one, the Israelite spies brought Israel a troubling report about the land, In Numbers chapter 13. So you know the context. We just read it. In Numbers 13, we see an example of sin as unbelief. The Lord tells some Israelites to spy out the promised land so that he would give it to them as an inheritance. The people come back with fear and panic because of the size of the land. And because of the size of the people with the power in the land. In Numbers 14, the text says that as a result, the Israelites who heard this report, they lamented and they mourned because they think Moses led them out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness. They tell one another they should pick another leader besides Moses, who will lead them, and they lament that they would have been better off as slaves in Egypt, perhaps thinking at least they would not die at the hands of the giants in the land if they were suffering as slaves in Egypt. Now we pick up the story in Numbers 13, verse 25, where the people return to the count to tell the people of God what they saw in the land. Numbers 13, 25. Still, still awake? Still with me? All right. Verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. 
They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and with its fruit. Now, let me just stop and interject this. I'm thinking the next verse is going to be a revival breaking out in the camp. Praising God. And if you're not Baptist, some dancing, some shouting, maybe some tambourines. Maybe what they should have done in Exodus 32 with respect to Yahweh, remember when they did that with respect to the idol? I'm expecting some God-inspired, God-breathed, Christ-exalting, pointing to Christ, exalting worship. That's not what you see. However, verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the Cities are fortified and and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. What I hear is lament. There is panic. They go to this promised land. They spy it out and they see how big it is. And how powerful the people who currently reside in it are. And they are moved to panic. They're moved to fear. But then Caleb, in verse 30, he quiets the people down. And and we we know from 1424, from Numbers 1424, that, that Caleb, he has a different spirit. He's a man of faith. We know this because the Lord says he's going to enter the promised land because of his faith. So Caleb stands and he quiets the people down. He stands before Moses and here's what he says in verse 30. Let us go up at once and occupy it for we are able to overcome it. Now understand something. Caleb is not saying we are more powerful than they. That is not his argument. These Jews are a small sect of people who have just been delivered out of slavery. Caleb, I would argue, is aware of the fact that they are not able within their own strength to overcome those who dwell in the land. I think he's anticipating here what he's going to say later in the passage when he says the Lord's going to fight for his people. And I think this is further correct because Exodus chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, they happened, right? That God delivered Israel out of Egypt. And, he know, and when he did that, the Israelites looked back when they crossed the Red Sea and saw those Egyptian bodies dead on the seashore. They are well aware of the fact, Caleb is well aware of the fact that the reason why they're going to overcome is because their God fights for their people. Can I get a witness about that this morning, by the way? He fights for his people. No, he doesn't promise us in the United States a land. It's not the point of this text. He's promising Israel a promised land. And that land promise, by the way, is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the new heavens and the new earth. 
Isaiah 65, 17 and following, Galatians 6, verse 15, Revelation 20 and 21. The land promised is fulfilled and realized in all of those who inherit the new heavens and the new earth by faith in Jesus, according to the New Testament authors. But here, they're heading toward a real physical land. And Caleb was trying to remind them that they can overcome it. But then the men respond, verse 31. They respond and say, well, okay, Caleb, let's praise God. No, that's not what they say, verse 31. They said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And I want to say, yes, they are. They are stronger than Israel. And so was Goliath, by the way. So, verse 32, they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. They had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them grasshoppers. I've never, nor will I ever eat grasshoppers. But grasshoppers were things that Israel could eat. And one of the things they're saying is, is that these people are going to consume us like grasshoppers. We're no match for these people in this land. That's my second point. The Israelites panic, and their panic, reveal, their panic reveals their unbelief. And, and we also see, however, a response of faith in this text. This is Numbers 14, verses 1 and following. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Last time I checked, by the way, that wasn't their song in Exodus. Remember that story? They were crying out to the Lord. And he heard the cries of his people, didn't he? crying out to the Lord this morning, he'll heal your cry. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Wow. <laughs> Take that, leaders in the room. I want to say something about leadership here, here in a second, but let me, let me walk through the rest of some of these verses here. Verse 5. Notice the response of Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, and Moses in this passage. In verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fail on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. They're, they're falling, I think, as an expression of lament. We know this because they tear their clothes. We see this later on in the passage. They're lamenting before the Lord. Sometimes when you're a leader, that's all you can do, right? Leaders in the room. In Joshua, verse 6, and Caleb and 
who were among the, those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. They said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. Notice this. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and he will give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. What, what are they doing? What are they compelling the people of God to do in this passage? They're compelling them to have faith in God, aren't they? I think the next sentence helps us see this. They say, only do not rebel against the Lord. Now know this, they're not saying that the court of Israel is rebelling against the Lord because they disagree with their leadership. Bad leadership needs to be dealt with responsibly and biblically, right? Leaders need to be held accountable when we sin. But hear this very carefully. The reason why they are rebelling against the Lord is because they're rejecting what God has promised to do for his people which he revealed to those leaders to communicate to them. The problem is they're rejecting the word of God. Now, again, I want you to hear this carefully. Because I've been in the ministry for over 20 years, and I know what can be misunderstood or what could be unclear in a sermon will be misunderstood and can be unclear in a sermon. So are we all on the same page right now at this point of the sermon? Let me, I'm going I'm to calm down and, and stop waving my arms. I want to speak pastorally to you, okay? This is not a text that says, well, if you disagree with your pastors on something, you're disagreeing with God. That's not what the text is saying. The text is saying in this text that these folks disagreed with God because these leaders were telling them what God has clearly revealed to them to do. And instead of receiving the revelation of God from God through Moses, through Aaron, through Caleb, through Joshua, they're choosing to rebel. They're choosing not to believe the promises of God. And Joshua reminds them, and Caleb and the others, do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You know, fear is a powerful thing, isn't it? It can make us do things that are spiritually irrational. If you think about your life, I know if I think about mine, there are moments when I have chosen not to step out in faith and to do what God had clearly revealed because of fear. How would it be received if I say this or if I do this? Will I be accepted if I say this or I do this? So the word of the Lord is, don't fear. And as you're afraid, take that fear to the Lord, right? Right? But, but again, notice Israel's unbelief. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But notice this little 
sentence here in the text that you might overlook, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Why is that there? Well, the people, the people are not with Moses and the others, but God is. He's there. Let me say a word here. I want to speak heart to heart to you as one of your pastors. Now you have approximately 15 pastors here. Not all of us are on staff. Some of us are what we call lay pastors. But we are pastors nevertheless. And understand this about your pastors or your leaders. There are other leaders, by the way, in the church besides pastors. But I want to speak as a pastor here, as one of your pastors, and say, God has called us as pastors to be faithful. He has not called us to be perfect. I promise you, if you get to know any one of us, we will disappoint you. We are, to quote one famous theologian, we are severe humans. But one one thing I would encourage you to do is don't become annoyed by our weaknesses and forget to thank God for our strengths. And by the way, I'm preaching the same sermon to me and to our other pastors that we want to love those in this body in a way where we celebrate the strengths and we don't become annoyed by the weaknesses. And we all have weaknesses, don't we? Let me say, I have weaknesses, many of them. And so one of the things I want to encourage us as a, as a church to do is, is assume, assume the best about each other, yes, but, but about your pastors Unless we give you clear, verifiable reasons to think otherwise. Unless there is evidence, in other words, not gossip or slander. Again, I've been in the ministry for over 20 years, and this is how it happens, right? Someone is unhappy about something that happens in a church, and they say something that is not factually accurate to somebody in the church, and then that's passed along, and then that's passed along, and the next thing you know... There's a whole narrative created about the pastors that's totally unverifiable. And the only thing that needed to be done was somebody should have come and had a conversation with one of the pastors to see, in fact, if this misinformation was true. Let me give you an example. Sometimes specific examples can be helpful here. So, so, so So I've heard it said before sometimes that people say that the pastors who preach here, that we don't preach the Bible And I would just say to you, if someone comes to you with that criticism, I would encourage you to sit down with them or encourage them to sit down and look at all the sermons and listen to all the sermons that are posted online and say to them after they do so, well, what specifically about those sermons was unbiblical? And if there's something unbiblical, then talk to the pastor that preached that sermon as opposed to making a claim or a character assault on someone's preaching that may not be verifiable if you look at the facts. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Folks, listen, there are many criticisms I will willingly receive about my preaching. Too long, sometimes too academic, sometimes boring, sometimes I don't make enough eye contact. But can I just speak for all of us here? Look, we are are all trying really, really hard to preach the Bible here. And when we fail to get the text right. It's not because we're all sitting around at elders meetings saying, how can we mislead the flock this week by preaching another bad sermon? It's because 
we're fallen human beings, and we may sometimes get the text wrong. But if we do, here's the way that you approach that. It's not, go, don't go on social media, don't go gossip in community group, don't get on Twitter. Talk to the pastor who preached the sermon. Don't send some long, nasty email. It's not helpful. Have a conversation. Does that make sense? I love you all. I'm speaking as a pastor. One of the 15, approximately 15, I think we have 15, pastors who loves this church. Let me again clarify here because anything that could be misunderstood will be because some will only hear, love your pastors and nothing else that I say. Understand that leaders need to be held accountable. There are numerous examples of leadership that has failed in churches that has not been held accountable. And, and by the way, there are legitimate reasons for people to leave churches because of that leadership not being held accountable. And, and I know some of you maybe have left certain churches because of real pain you've experienced. And I'm not dismissing that. If I told you some of the pain I've, I've felt in church life, I don't know if you could function anymore if you hear some of the stuff that I've had to deal with in my own personal walk with Jesus. But here's what I want to encourage you, and I'm going to come back to this at the end. In this congregation, you should assume that your pastors genuinely love this flock and are trying with God's help to do what is right unless there are clear facts to prove otherwise. And don't rely upon gossip or slander to support your arguments, but rely upon the facts. Does that make sense? Well, notice Numbers 14, verse 1, what the Lord says. The Lord said to Moses, 14, verse 11, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me? See, notice what's happening here. Moses and Joshua and Caleb and Aaron, they're not having a power trip. The issue is, is that these people are refusing to submit and trust in what God has said he will do and what God has already shown he will do for his people. And the Lord then speaks. And let me tell you something. When the Lord starts start speaking in the text, you better listen, right? You should listen to every word because every word matters. But when the Lord stops saying, hey, y'all, listen to this, you better really listen to this, right? And the Lord says, these people don't believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them. What signs? Well, I delivered them from Egypt. So in verse 12, this is so tragic. 14, 12, I will strike them with, the pe with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. I, I interpret that to mean this. That God is going to wipe them out and start all over again with Moses. Much like what he said in Exodus 32, 33, and 34. But, but Moses does hear what he does there and he prays. The people of God pray. Pray for mercy. And God showed mercy to some and he showed judgment to others because of their unbelief. 
Three applications. One. Brothers and sisters, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 1 through 3. Another text from Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses from the Old Testament, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, that is faith. Looking unto Jesus. The only perfect shepherd in this church. Right? Brothers and sisters, believe that our God is the one and true living God who has fulfilled all of his redemptive promises in Christ and for the world and receive the redemptive promises of God by faith. Second, if you're struggling today to hold on to your faith in Jesus, Cry out to him. Let me just say to you, I think a normal rhythm of the Christian life is wrestling with faith. And faith is a fight to hold on to. Otherwise, why do you have these exhortations in Scripture? To hold on until the faith, to hold on to your confession, until the end. Why do you have the exhortation in Hebrews to run the race set before you, laying aside all the sin that entangles you, looking unto Jesus? These are imperatives. Faith is not, and I hope you don't think this, faith is not letting go and letting God. Oh, I don't like that slogan. Faith is holding on firmly by your grip in the power of the Spirit as God in Christ is holding on to you. As we are in Jesus' hands, and his hands are in the Father's hands, John 10. But faith is something for which we fight and that we work out with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, 12 and following. But, but understand that struggling with faith as you profess faith, that's a normal rhythm. Let me just say to you, just be honest. This is like Transparency Day. Typically, I like to build walls between me and you because I'm like very private, but I think it's more helpful for me to be just vulnerable this morning, all right? So there are moments, there are moments when I'm here getting ready to preach and I'm having to say, Lord, help me to believe what we're singing and help me to believe what I'm going to say to these people. And I call that faith. So if you're struggling this morning, 
to hold on to your faith in Jesus, here's what I would exhort you to do. Cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe and please help my unbelief. Or maybe this is your posture. Jesus, Jesus, I don't believe, but I want to believe. Please help my unbelief. Or maybe this is you. Jesus, once I believed, and I no longer believe, and I no longer want to believe. But here's what I would say to you. You should say, but Jesus, please help me to want to believe again. For I know the Bible says the path that leads to life is following Jesus until the end. So please help me by your spirit to believe. I believe God will use that. And I would encourage you to talk to a pastor. If you're here this morning and you fit into one of these categories, we have a connect room. There'll be a pastor there eager to talk with you and to pray with you. No pastors cannot solve any of your spiritual problems. What we can do is pray the word of God over your life and remind you of the promises of God, just like they do in this text. And ask the Spirit to use that promise and to use that word as a means by which he helps you to gird up your spiritual loins and fight for faith in the power of the Spirit as God has already fought for you in King Jesus and is fighting for you now through the power of the Spirit who lives in you right now if you have faith. And I believe God will use prayers like that to strengthen you, and to encourage you to use those prayers as a means by which you persevere. Now, oh, there's so much I could say. My sermons are already too long. Let me just say one more quick thing here. Let me just say a brief word about deconstruction, all right? Yeah, that's why it's brief. (laughs) (laughs) So there needs to be all sorts of nuances In this conversation, the word deconstruction means different things to different people, depending on the person you're talking to. But I just simply want to say this to you. I recognize there are all sorts of reasons why people have pain associated with the church, or excuse me, with churches. Because by the way, in the United States, there's no such thing as the American church. There is no the American church. There are churches. We don't have a state church, right? So if you say the American church all the time, stop saying it. It's wrong. There's no the American church. There are real reasons that people are doing whatever they mean by their version of deconstruction. But here's what I want to say to you. The people who are the source of your pain, they are not Jesus. Do not walk away from Jesus. And do not celebrate when people walk away from Jesus. Now, just again, I want to clarify here because this conversation is complex and is nuanced. And I have no time in a sermon to be nuanced or or as complex as I need to to, to recognize. But I just want to say, again, I want to acknowledge there are people who are hurt and they leave churches because they're hurt. But here's what I'm saying to you. I'm saying, do not walk away from Jesus. 
If you're struggling today with the failure of leaders who profess Christ, those leaders aren't Christ. Turn to Christ. And turn to pastors here who want you to turn to Christ, who can help you in this struggle. Third and finally, if you're not a Christian, give your life to Jesus today. Unbelief that is not repented of or lack of faith in Christ will lead to judgment. But faith in Christ leads to life. You know, here's the beauty of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, you can, you can become a Christian like right now as I'm talking. You can cry out to Jesus and ask him to save you and to forgive you from your sins. And you don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. No pastors have it all figured out. You just need to recognize you're a sinner and Jesus died for your sin, that God raised him from the dead. And you can be saved. And we would love as pastors or staff to talk with you after the service in the connect room about what it means to be a disciple of Christ in the theological sense. So brothers and sisters, have faith today that God has fulfilled all of his promises for his people in Christ. And by the Spirit of God in you, Hold on to your faith in Christ until the end because God is keeping you for a ready-to-be-revealed salvation on the last day, which is being reserved in heaven for you who are being kept by the power of God. And watch this through faith, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, right? So may God do it in us. Amen. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.